Bannon. Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day, happy today. You are listening to Restaurant Fiction. That's right. I hope you know that you're listening to it. I hope you know what Restaurant Fiction is about. And if you don't, well, before we even begin, there is only one really main way. I mean, I know you can listen to this in the car. You can listen to this while doing the dishes. You can just listen to it wherever you are. But the best way to experience Restaurant Fiction is by eating a delicious slice of the 1919 cheesecake. That's right. The 1919 cheesecake is only available to Southern California, actually LA County residents. So if you do live in LA County, well, DM them the 1919 cheesecake on Instagram. Get yourself a whole pie or a whole cake, I should say. Cut yourself a slice or just dip your whole entire hand into that uh, cream cheesy goodness and listen to this amazing episode of Restaurant Fiction. And if you do not live in LA County, well then, I'm sorry, man. Get your butt over here. Listen to the podcast. But before that, order yourself a 1919 cheesecake. DM them, direct message them on Instagram, which is the 1919 cheesecake. Now, this is Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club in TV and film. I am your host with the most modest rose. And today we are talking to executive producer, co-showrunner of the TV show Queen of the South. It was on USA Network, Ben Lobato. Now, what are we reviewing? We are reviewing the fictional bar, the fictional tequila bar deep in NOLA, deep in New Orleans, Sieta Gotas. Now, before we begin this awesome episode. You see, once upon a time, I was a cook. I was a chef. It, does, it just depends on who you ask to a seafood joint. And there was a dishwasher that I worked with. Let's just call him Marcos, where you have to roll your R's. I really am actually shitty at rolling my R's. I only can say it with like Puerto Rico. Now, that was actually bad too. Anyway, Marcos, he worked with me. He was the dishwasher. and he would come late all of the time. And I'm not just talking about, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes. I'm talking about maybe like two hours well into the shift where pretty much all of the other behind the line cooks and uh, from chefs to, you know, the Miss and Plus crew would have to uh, pick up the slack. And guess what? It was an honor to do so because no one fucked with the Marcos. It's kind of like with the Big Lebowski. No one fucked with the Jesus. That's right. No one fucks with the Jesus. And the reason why is because when Marcos came, oh, he came with his chest lifted and he came with a couple of bottles of extra Nejo tequila and some Pacifico. And it was always a party when Marcos came. I loved, loved, loved working with Marcos. I mean, yes, 
he did do the dishes on time and all that, but that was not the point. You see, you respected the most important person in the entire kitchen, and that was Modico's. That was the dishwasher. And guess what? When Modico's was happy, the entire restaurant was happy. Oh, and plus, uh, Marcos used to be a drug meal from the cartel, and he had about four homes in Los Angeles, and he was sending his kids to private elite colleges and high schools. Marcos was the man. Long live him. Now, without any further ado, here is our review of Siete Gotas deep down in the Big Easy, and our question-answer chat, fireside chat, our conversation our in-depth look, deep dive into the heart, soul, and mind of the brilliant Ben Lobato. Go! Without any further ado, guys, gals, aliens, dinosaurs, big foot, big feet out there. You know, when you are in New Orleans, people think of New Orleans as, oh, let's have a hurricane or let's have some kind of grenade on Bourbon Street. But no, no, no. Uh, in New Orleans, in the Vucre, in this uh, swampland, if you will, it's all about tequila. And not just any tequila, it is about Siete Gotas. Now, what is Siete Gotas? It is seven drops. And, you know, for those people that really do not know of um, their tequilas, uh, there are different types. There's uh, different types. You have your Reposados, you have your Anejos, but then you have your Extra Anejos, you have your Age Anejos. And this uh, Siete Gotas, this is smooth. This is smooth. This is stuff that you want to sip, you see, because in the uh, bar, in this amazing New Orleans bar where they have, uh, where they serve these delicious, it's almost like a churro meets beignets, like a chignet or whatever. It's this uh, delicious food upstairs. You um, in the basement where all of the deals happen, where all the politics happen, you have these oak barrels, these like French oak and whiskey oak barrels that are just aging this fine elixir from the agave plant. And I'm not just talking about the highlands from Mexico. I'm also talking about the lowlands from Mexico. So you get these floral notes, but you also get those citrus flavors as well. And now, no disrespect to those people out there who want a Paloma or a Margarita. That's all fine. You know, you can still stay, but this is to sip. This is to sip because you are tasting the blood. You are tasting the blood, sweat, and tears of the craft, of the craft of goodness that's just going to uh, make or break you no matter what. And it just adds to the environment, it adds to the world, and it gives you that little edge, especially in New Orleans. All right, that's that's really all we got about Santa Gotas. You know, it's just our little quick review. Uh, what did you think? I mean, you know, there wasn't that much, but you know, um, with uh, we feel that with Santa Gotas, uh, with Queen of the South Bend, you brought not just a tequila, but you bought a you brought a very very fine tequila. It, this was like quality, just because the cocaine that uh, Teresa embeds and is a part of is also that Bolivian pure shit. <laughs> I mean, I think you nailed it. When we talked about this, what type of bar it is, it needs to be sophisticated, right? I mean, we don't even want limes to be behind the bar, right? There are no limes. There are no salt. This is not tequila that you mix. If you want that, go down the street because this is not what we're doing here. This is pure gold. This is sipping elixir from the gods. That's the idea. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. And how well versed in tequila are you? To be honest with you, I'm more of a mezcal guy. Yeah. But mezcal is not really one of those things that a lot of people are kind of into. Like tequila was kind of like, it was just a simpler sell, right? Because tequila moves in mass quantities, whereas mezcal is very much like it's sold in batches, right? And like wine every year, that's going to be a different flavor, depending on the rain, depending on what's in the soil, and depending on, you know, how it's put together. So I mean, for me, I'm much more into that. I'm actually, um, I would that one of my dreams actually is to have you know, a line of mezcal. That's something that I've I've explored. And, you know, pre-COVID, I actually, that was one of the things that I was looking to get into because I'm also an entrepreneur. And all of that was kind of shut down, you know, with the COVID crisis. But, you know, I'm looking to the future and hoping that um, I can revisit that as we get, as we uh, come out of this uh, time that we're in. For those listening, you know, mezcal guys, for the guys and gals out there who are not familiar, it is more of a smokiness. You get more of a, a smoky, a smokiness of this uh, type of alcohol. And I mean, obviously, it's throughout Mexico, but especially in the Oaxacan, Oaxaca region, you would definitely have your mezcals. Yeah. Do you have any uh, favorites right now? Well, the, you know, I, I would say it, favorites that people can actually purchase. I'll mention because the other, you know, kind of batch uh, specialty mezcals that I get a hold of, like you're not going to find them in the store. But one of my favorites that you can actually find in the store is Clase Azul and uh, Monte Lobos. Those are two of my favorites. There's so many different. It's so varied. And I, I would tell people like the way to kind of deter, you know, one of the things that you can look at, like tequila is made from blue agave. That's what goes into tequila. Mezcal is made from hundreds of different agave plants, not just blue agave. And depending on what plant you choose, what region it's from, you know, how much sunlight it got, whether there's there's honey into it, there's spices. Sometimes there's a, um, a roasted chicken breast. There are all these things that go into it that really make it make it not just a craft board, but an art form that's been passed down for generations to um, really to families. This came from the Mayans, right? So it's a real, it's an indigenous artisanal craft that cannot be produced on a mass scale. And that's what makes every drop of it so valuable and so rich because it's it's every sip is an adventure every bottle is an adventure every batch and there, it's a, you cannot mass produce it uh people have tried you know i know there are brands out there that mass produce it but really uh you're gonna lose something that's very special which is that mystery that you have every time you crack open a bottle of moscow wow Wow, man, you're right. Tequila is a little easier to sell, but that would have been amazing if Yeti <laughs> Gotas was more of a mezcal, if Teresa was embedding and being a producer of mezcal versus Reserva and extra Anejo tequila. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's again, it's all about it's all about the size of the shipments because 
the concept was she's liquefying her cocaine, putting it into tequila bottles. Well, the difference is I can send you 10,000 tequila bottles, right? Where each bottle is a liquefied kilo of cocaine, but I cannot send you 10,000 bottles of, you know, batch mezcal. So, you know, that's therein lies the, you know, even though like I really, when we talked about it, like, I would love to do mezcal. And of course, in my mind, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, and I'm going to introduce, you know, my mezcal into the storyline, right? Like, you know, those are all ideas that you, but the reality is it does, it, you know, didn't work for what we needed it to do in the show. We needed it to, to, um, to be tequila. So um, I think it worked out. I think it's really cool. Gotcha. You know, speaking though, of really quick, Sieta Gotas, you know, like what does though, yeah, tequila, and the bar say about the characters? What does it say about Teresa? What does it say about, you know, her friends and the, her friends that betray her and her enemies? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, she's, um, she, she came from the streets. She was a money changer on the streets of Culiacan. And Siete Gotas is actually a neighborhood, a barrio within Culiacan that she's from. That's the backstory. And that's why she, so it's a little bit of like when we designed the restaurant um, going into season four, our production designer, Ryan Palmer, we talked about this in terms of like, she's a modern, sophisticated woman, right? So we needed to feel a little bit modern. We needed to have that, a little bit of that New Orleans old world patina, but then we need to make that, we also need to bring in that Mesoamerican flavor. So that's a lot of different things that we're trying to bring together in the fusion of the design of, of the um, of the set. And I think they did a really great job. You know, you have some of that New Orleans patina, but then you also have a very sleek bar area with the lighting and whatnot. And then some of the colors that we're bringing in from Mexico. And I think it really all came together in a beautiful way. And what I love, because you're right, when someone thinks of New Orleans, you know, they think of these old like Sazerac drinks, they think of like rum drinks, they don't think of tequila. So you're bringing uh, something you're bringing to a city that already has an edge, you're just enhancing that. That's right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, and especially with season four, yeah, how significant is uh, Siete Gotas to uh, Queen of the South? Well, I mean, there's there's two different things from a story perspective. It's the gangster's clubhouse, right? And all of these genres, you need a location to be their stronghold where you can have meetings, where things can happen behind the scenes. And then you also need that kind of legitimate front business. And so in terms of the story, you know, that's what it serves, not unlike the Bada Bing and the Sopranos. For our character of Teresa Mendoza, it represents, in a way, her dipping her toe into a legitimate business. Because Aside from the fact that she was she was importing cocaine under the guise of tequila, the bar was actually a real bar. Like it really served tequila. It really was a bar. And so it was a legitimate business. And the beginning of her buying real estate and starting to move into this legitimate side of the business, as she talks about at the beginning of season one, this idea that, you know, a lot of American dynasties started as criminal enterprises. And she mentions the Kennedys. And uh, she says, you know, why not us? And so that's kind of the idea behind it, that this is her first entry into the legitimate business world. Wow. Wow. 
take me into, I guess, the writer's room really quick of Queen of Hell. Like, how often is, say, a scene about Sia to go to pitch? Obviously, you're you're doing character, but you know, to you know, you're you're getting with your writers, you're getting with um, also the behind the scenes crew, and it's like, yeah, how often is a scene at this bar pitch? Just because either because of story or even because you just love it. You just love to put a scene there. You just love to put Teresa in there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's anytime a scene is pitched, the you know, we start with the scene and then we say, where's the best place to put the scene, right? Because this, the bar was a set that we built on our stages and it was, it was really our only standing set for like season four. The rest of it, we were out in the city. We were shooting in actual bars and clubs and in different places around the city. So just from a production standpoint, we have to spend a certain amount of time on the on our stages. So anytime there's a there's a there's a scene that's pitched, whether it's a it's a meeting between Teresa, one of her allies, one of her enemies question always comes up, is this a scene that we can do at the bar? And so we kind of always start there and work out, you know, are we going to murder somebody inside the bar? You know, we try not to, but of course that's part of the storyline. This is our legitimate business. Nothing, you know, uh, criminal happens here. No deaths at the top of season four. The catalyst for the season is Javier murdering the judge's nephew in the restroom after hours in the bar. And that kind of launches really the next two seasons. That's the catalyst for kind of like all the big moves that happen afterwards, you know, which is great, you know? So we have this place and there are rules that are laid down. This is not Mexico. We're not chopping off heads. We're not killing people. And very quickly it happens. And it kind of launches what, you know, it's like I said, it's the catalyst for the, for season four and into season five. And, you know, you, you put it in, you know, NOLA, this uh, New Orleans, which has such a long history of all kinds of edge and vice, um, et cetera, et cetera, you know, in terms of music, I know you, um, you dabble in the trumpet, you know, did you ever think, well, Hey, maybe Santa Gotas needs like a trumpet or a jazz soundtrack to it. Did that ever come into play? You know what? We talked about it, but it's interesting because we actually had some scenes with with some jazz and we had bands and whatnot. But it's interesting because the show is kind of like it wants to it wants to be very modern. And sometimes when you have the jazz and the backgrounds of New Orleans, it can feel a little cliche unless you're doing something that's like a fusion you know, like maybe like if it's like a Latin jazz thing or something that's um, a little edgier, but those things are really hard to do. And then to have them be music in the background, it takes away from the actual scene. So then it becomes like a distraction. So usually what you end up doing, and this is kind of like all the shows that shoot in New Orleans is you get some kind of classic jazz that plays like wallpaper music in the background and it's just kind of there breathing but it's not drawing attention to itself that's kind of what you're looking for when you're telling these stories what are some of your fondest memories specifically shooting in Sieta gotas in season five we have this scene in episode 503 when boaz after the judge kills Javier in retaliation for killing the nephew, he not only kills Javier, but kills his girlfriend, who is Boaz's ex-fiance, who he calls the love of his life. 
after the judge murders them, Boaz wants to get retribution. He wants to take vengeance. And Teresa warns him off. She says, you cannot, you cannot, we cannot risk this. I made a truce. You cannot do this thing. And in season three, Boaz goes missing. At the end of the teaser, he shows up with a box and places it on Teresa's desk in the office. And she opens it up and it's the judge's head. And it was when we pitched this, I remember pitching this. And I said, and he says one thing, he takes off his hat and he says, Lo sienta jefa, I tried, you know, which basically means that, you know, I'm sorry, I tried. So, you know, he tried to follow her orders, but, you know, he couldn't keep the wolf at bay. He took vengeance. And so literally, as they're still reacting to the fact that he just chopped off the judge's head and delivered it to her in a box, the police storm in to the bar. And they're there because the judge has been murdered. They found his headless body and he's there to you know, find out what happened, get to the bottom of it and threaten Teresa. And of course, she's claiming, I don't know anything about this. And as they're having this conversation, the box with the head is literally right between them. And at a certain point, and so the tension is just, just, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's through the roof. And at a certain point, you know, to punctuate his threat, he leans forward on her desk and with his hand brushes the box with the head aside as he's leaning in to threaten her, not knowing that literally the head is in the box right there. And so that's just one of those amazing moments when we came to that, we were like, we we have to do that scene. And so it was pitched and it pretty much landed exactly the way it was pitched. Wow. You know, the first time, I mean... Anytime I see any, you know, in TV and film, anytime I see anyone's head, it's it. it uh, I remember it. Like I remember, you know, seeing in Seven. I don't know if you remember the movie Seven, but they do the box. What's yeah, in the box? <laughs> the box? Yeah, I always think of that, you know. And then I even think of like, obviously, it wasn't a human head, but it was a horse's head, you know, in The Godfather. I'm like, oh. Man. <laughs> yeah, I just think of those. It's very. uh those scenes are very memorable. Let's just say that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, uh, the, what's better than a head wrapped in bubble wrap? Deli- you right. I mean, it's just like, I mean, this is just. <laughs> Even on the development stage of a show, whether it be Queen of the South or whether it be any of your other shows, like how often do you think, what does my character eat and drink? You know, what does. Uh, Teresa, even if we're not going to ever show it, like, what is she having with her, you know, with her lover? What is she going to have by herself collecting her thoughts? Yeah. I mean, on our show, she doesn't eat. I mean, it's kind of like one of the running jokes uh, behind the scenes. We have this character played by Hemke Madero um, Pote, who his backstory is that he used to be a chef for one of the cartel bosses and that, and he got really good with the knives and he graduated to being a Sicario. So he's no longer a chef. He's actually, uh, you know, a hired gun now, but for fun, because he loves cooking, we have scenes with him cooking, which is really fun because, you know, he's this big gregarious killer, but, you know, he puts on an apron and he enjoys cooking in his spare time on his days off. But we had a couple of scenes where he was in the kitchen cooking uh, and Teresa would come in and say, Teresa, try this, you know, soup or whatever. And she would taste it. But then before they could actually sit down and eat, some crisis would occur and off they would go running. And so for like five seasons, we would joke that we like never saw them 
sitting down to eat together. And so in the series finale in season five, the, the penultimate scene, the second to the last scene of the entire show, we actually have them all sitting down and having dinner. And it's a beautiful scene because it's the first time in the series that they're not looking over their shoulder. You know, no one's no one knows where they are. No one's coming to kill them. They let their hair down. They sit down and they have this meal together. And it's this beautiful moment. And it's a callback to something that happened three seasons prior where Pote was they were in uh, Malta and Pote was experimenting, making this widow soup that Teresa never got to have. And so now we come all the way full circle in season five, they're having a meal, but Teresa cooked. And what does she make? She made the widow soup. And now Pote is going like, this is delicious. I need to get the recipe. And it's this beautiful moment. And, but that was a setup that took more than three seasons to get there. And so it was just a beautiful moment. So that we do, even though that's not what the show's about, because the writers on the show are all foodies, it comes into play. And that's, that was the biggest moment that it really came into play, that it was that we did this callback from almost four seasons. So that was a beautiful moment. Well, you know, and even in the development process, like it is about character moments, even the stuff that doesn't make it into the TV show, you're still thinking about it. Like these are the important moments that even if you, you that that scene, almost like that last supper scene never actually did get to air you still had it in your head. You still had it like, okay, this is how the people are going to react over this meal. This is what even food means to them. This is in their blood. That's right. Awesome. 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 You know, and really quick with Pote, um, I don't know if you had a hand in it or it was on the marketing staff of the USA um, network, but I don't know, did you have a hand when he made the cooking video of a, a churro meets beignet? <laughs> yeah, the 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 uh, chainettes. We, we yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we came up with that, and then we started pitching ideas for like marketing, and um, and then they put together that amazing video, which was so much fun. Yeah. And um, and then and then it's another callback that we come back to in season five when um, they're now on the run, living under assumed names, and and they join this like neighborhood like yard sale where people are bringing food and he brings the chainettes, you know what I mean? And it's just like, so, so much. So, so yeah, man. So like, we really think about it and it really in many ways defines that character of Pote because it just, you know, you take a guy who's used to like, who might be chopping off hands or killing people, but yet he's just like, he's got a sweet tooth. He likes to cook. And there's something about that that really humanizes him in a way because that's what we need to do because he's one of the good guys. He's one of our guys. And so how do you do that? You make him relatable. And what's relatable? Everybody has to eat. And people like good food. And they appreciate joyful cooks. And that's who he is. Thank you, Ben. We really enjoyed it. Actually, tell you the truth, we enjoyed it so much. We enjoyed this whole uh, chat so much we actually split it into two parts this is part one and part two is going to be coming up soon in another week or two so be prepared for that why because it's just too goddamn good there's too much awesome material and if you loved part one then be sure to listen to part two coming soon and then you could tell us which one you like better of course with us 
we pick no favorites. Part one is awesome. Part two is even more awesome. But then once again, part one is even more awesome. So it doesn't really matter. Nothing else does. Until next time, my name is Monis Rose. Keep it real, keep it fresh, and always keep on the flip side. Cut to exterior, interior, restaurant, bar, club.